Welcome to McKnight's Long-Term Care Newsmakers Podcast, where we share the latest information and views from industry leaders. Hi, this is McKnight's Long-Term Care News Senior Editor Kim Marcellus coming to you live from the ACA NCAL 2023 Congressional Briefing. We've had a busy morning here with a session from the association's number two lobbyist, Cliff Porter, who highlighted workforce solutions providers could discuss with their lawmakers while they're here in Washington, D.C. for a couple of days. Chief among those were bills extending the temporary nurse aid program and changes to a rule that prevents some nursing homes from training their own much-needed CNAs. Of course, timing as it is, the big talk of the town here remains the staffing mandate that CMS was set to drop any day. In the middle of it all is Nate Shima, CEO of the Good Samaritan Society and the not-for-profit representative on ACA's board. Nate, thanks for joining me. Wanted to jump right in here and catch up on what challenges Good Sam, the nation's largest skilled nursing provider, is facing as you exit the pandemic. Talk a little bit about how your experience and your reorganization kind of reflects what others have been through during the pandemic. You know, we've certainly been through a lot the last three or four years and coming together with Sanford Health and then obviously within a year the pandemic hit and I think it allowed us or it forced us to reflect on who and where we serve. It gave us the ability to um, re-examine how we might best function as an integrated health system. And so obviously going through our consolidation plan, we strategically made that decision to consolidate down to seven states. Currently, things are, are well along the way. We have transitioned now out of Oregon. We're expecting to transition out of Washington on July 1st. Um, and uh, Montana also transitioned on June 1st. So essentially the Pacific Northwest is now transition to a great quality partner, Cascadia Health. Those are all in Cascadia. Correct. Um, and we've got many more along the way. I think one of the things we've learned is that it's not always, we can find the best partner and we can have all the best laid plans, but it's not always completely in our hands, much like the proposed minimum staffing rule. <laughs> uh, we're at the whims of state regulators as well, uh, getting those licenses transitioned. And so it always seems to take a little longer uh, than we want it to. And so I do expect that we're going to have uh, much of these 15 states or roughly 35 locations transitioned in the next 18 to 24 months. Um, but again, that, that's always subject to change. Okay. Good. That takes care of one of the questions I was going to ask later, too. I was going to ask for some members there. So let's talk a couple minutes about this day. Who are you meeting with? Maybe you had some meetings yesterday as well. And, and what are the things you're going to be talking about? Yeah, you know, we're, we're meeting with Senator Klobuchar, uh, Senator Ricketts. We're meeting with uh, certainly our, our Senator Thune here uh, this evening, and we have one more, and Joni Ernst out of Iowa. So those are the four uh, folks we're going to be talking to today. We also have a couple leaders from some of our small communities okay. in Nebraska here, then, and they're going with their delegation through the Nebraska Healthcare Association to visit a lot of folks. And you know, I, I think our message is pretty clear. Looking at any unfounded mandate, it's going to have an impact on rural access. and. It's no secret, we've closed 13 buildings now over the last two years, and it's forced people to now have to make some really hard decisions. And I don't wanna to have to ever be in the, the situation where I'm standing in front of family members and loved ones and say, you're gonna to have to drive another hour or two away. But I'm concerned that a, a minimum staffing mandate could create even greater disproportionate impact to our rural seniors. And it's those seniors that are gonna pay the price. 
So now it's getting a lot of attention. Um, I like what Cliff just talked about, though. We, we can't just say what we're concerned about. We have to offer some alternatives, some solutions yep. legislatively. Some of the priorities were also priorities last year. Is there more reason to hope? You know, I think the, the one thing that gives us a little bit more hope is, you know, just watching what this bipartisan effort around the debt ceiling and, you know, what they were able to accomplish when I think a lot of people doubted whether or not that would happen and certainly happen as quickly as it did. You know, at the Good Samaritan Society, we have over 300 nurses that we're, we're trying to bring over on visas and due to the retrogression, 45% of those folks won't make it this year. Uh, and for a provider that has over 2,000 open positions, that is absolutely critical. So I think we're hopeful on the immigration front that maybe there's an avenue. Uh, you know, maybe there's some bipartisan support that we might be able to thread that same needle in the same way that that debt ceiling deal was able to be brokered and done. Staffing is not, it's not a red or it's not a right or a left issue. Uh, it's America's issue and we need to continue to deal with that. And we need to tackle it head on. Otherwise, we're going to continue to have access issues especially in the upper rural Midwest. So uh, the bills, I mean, are you, are you going to talk the most about, is it the Dignity Act? Are you going to get into the kind of the more specific lockout, TNA waiver type acts? We're not going to specifically get into the TNA Act, the, the Dignity Act, the, the Workforce Resiliency Act. We obviously support that 100%. It seems pretty tone deaf right now to introduce a, a minimum staffing mandate when tone deaf, out of touch, when we don't have workers to begin with. Many of the rural communities that we serve, less than 2% unemployment. So, you know, yes, we need more workers. We need, I think the statistic is up to 200,000 more nurses a year for the next five years to be where we need to be. And right now the pipeline only supports about half of that. Okay, so tell me a little bit more about what you are seeing, particularly in the Midwest where you're staying. Have you seen any improvements in staffing or are you still hurting as much as you ever were? You know, a year ago when we talked, Kim, I think we had about 2,100 open positions. And today we're at 2,000 open positions. So I think the short answer is it's incremental. And it's going to take years for us to fully recover. And so that's why we're going to need a runway. We're going to need a common sense approach to whatever this proposed minimum safety mandate ultimately looks like. You know, I think we're hopeful that some of the states and their Medicaid reimbursements are starting to come along. In, in South Dakota, for example, we received a 25.3% increase. Wow. That's, that's, that's unprecedented for us. And that happened very quietly. I don't it, think I've heard that. It's, it's been pretty, it's pretty incredible and it's going to start here uh, July 1st. However, it's important that policymakers know that once you do the deal like that, we're not done. It's not fixed. That takes us from being one of the nation's lowest paying states to bottom 10. Okay. <laughs> so, we still have a long ways to go. We need to continue to reinvest in our seniors if we're going to keep access close to home. Yeah, I think Pennsylvania really showed that because last year they got 17% ahead of the curve, hadn't had an increase for a long time, and they got nothing originally this year. I think they negotiated a, a very small increase. I think Nebraska is another perfect example. I think it was like 17% last year, and now it's 3% this year. But it's already planned in the biennium for zero next year. And when inflation continues to just skyrocket, we're losing nurses now to LPN. Uh, I mean, we're losing LPNs to Amazon and to manufacturing plants. We're losing them to retail stores. It's, it's, it's an incredible time in our industry, and I just want our policymakers to know we've got a long ways to go. So what about retention? Are you finding that any of your efforts are paying off? 
keeping people at least a little longer after you get them to sign up? That has been one of our three strategic goals in 2023. We're actually working with a, an external firm right now to introduce some new and creative ways to celebrate our staff because we know the pipeline has to get bigger, but once we have them, you know, what are we doing to keep them? What are we doing to love up on them? How are we celebrating those milestones, whether it's 30, 60, 90 days that they're there? How do we have a best friend at work uh, and build a culture where folks feel like they can go speak to the leader and uh, really grab a hold of the mission and the whole reason why we're there to serve in the beginning, in the first place. Hey, thanks so much for taking a little time out of what is clearly a very busy schedule here on Capitol Hill to share some of your experiences. For now, this is Kim Marcellus saying thank you for listening and have a great day. Thank you for listening to McKnight's Long-Term Care Newsmakers podcast. For the latest in long-term care news, visit McKnight's.com.